Let's open our Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. The late Harold Honer began his commentary on Paul's letter to the Ephesians with these words. The letter to the Ephesians is one of the most influential documents in the Christian church. John Calvin counted Ephesians as his favorite book of scripture and preached 48 sermons from this letter from May 19 or from May 1558 to May 1559. How many lessons do we have on Ephesians right now, John? 48. Well, I I intended to do exactly the same number Calvin did, so we'll let's turn to another passage of scripture tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like we're going to be over that number, but um, it was one of his favorite books of scripture. In fact, John Knox asked for Calvin's sermons on Ephesians to be read to him during the last days of his life. And his wife lovingly complied with that request. That's what John Knox was filling his soul with for the last days of his life. The Catholic scholar, the late Catholic scholar, Raymond Brown, summed it up very well, I think, shortly before he died, saying about Ephesians, among the Pauline writings, only Romans can match Ephesians as a candidate for exercising the most influence on Christian thought and spirituality. Certainly, Ephesians and Romans reveal some of the deepest theology in all of the Word of God. And a careful study of this letter, as we have been doing for 48 lessons, and we'll have a few more to go, but a careful study of this letter and a commitment, not just a study, but a commitment to follow what Paul is through under the ministry of the Holy Spirit teaching here is going to go a long way toward moving us in the direction that we want to go spiritually, in the direction that we want to go with regard to Christian maturity. It's that kind of letter. It's that important. And I know we've spent some time. And the reason I'm going back over some of these things tonight is I don't want us to get so close to the forest that we don't see the trees, that we don't get the big picture that's why periodically from time to time I want to remind us of big picture and then we go back to details. Big picture and then back to details. I don't want you to go and, and be discussing Ephesians with somebody five years from now and they say, well, what's Ephesians about anyway? They say, well, Jesus. Yeah, I know that. But what else is it about besides Jesus? I'd like for you to get the big picture. There's an overlay of unity that, that, that is, uh, is seen all throughout Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He's speaking of unity in the, in the entirety of the body of Christ, the body of Christ being everyone who has personally accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. And not just that, though. The principle of unity as an overlay for the body of Christ is one thing. But then we have local churches within that body. And Paul will speak in a secondary way to unity within the local church. But that's not all. He also speaks of unity in interpersonal relationships. And that's not all. He also speaks of unity in the marriage relationship as well. We'll see that at the latter part of this chapter. So it's an extremely important book. If we'll follow what it says, if, we'll follow, if we follow what it says, it'll move us a long way toward uh, Christian maturity. Most conservative scholars hold to the tradition that Paul wrote Ephesians along with Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians and the other, the other prison officials during his first Roman imprisonment between 60 and 62 A.D. So Paul writes Ephesians from prison, 60 to 62 A.D. He dies 68. He's probably, if you want to know um, about Paul's age during the, at the time he writes these things, he, he pro it probably tracks fairly well 
in, in terms of if Paul's, in the year 60 to 62, Paul was probably about 60 to 62 years old. He probably was born around the same time of our Lord, probably died around 68 years old in the year 68. But Paul first visited Ephesus, if you'll recall, at the end of his second missionary journey in the fall of 52 A.D. So he first visits Ephesus about 10 years before he writes this letter. Now, he stays there just a really short time on that first visit. Remember, we studied this in Acts. Maybe a week, maybe as much as a month, but no more than a month in that first visit. But even though he only stayed there a short time, he developed a real strong bond with the believers there. And he promises them that someday he will return. Well, that someday came about a year later in the fall of 53 during his third missionary journey. And it's at that time that he stays for about two and a half years. And he teaches them, to put it in his words, house to house, the whole purpose of the whole counsel of God. How would you like to have had the Apostle Paul as your pastor for two and a half years? I hope we wouldn't have missed any Bible studies, but I suspect we might have. And that's, that's what makes it kind of bad. I heard, I heard someone say the other day that, there, that someone was, was the type of person that would have snored through the Sermon on the Mount. I'm sure there were people that still snored through Paul's sermons, but the opportunity would have been there. Now, obviously, they don't get it all because he has to write this letter. And, and if he's preaching the whole counsel of God, he's following up. But the intensity of the bond that is forged, not just in that first, le- in the first short visit at the end of the second missionary journey, but the bond that is forged primarily in that third missionary journey, when he stays there for two and a half years, that bond is seen in Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders that's recorded in Acts chapter 20, which is given on Paul's way back to Jerusalem in 57. So first he meets him in 52, he comes back in 53, he sees him a third time in 57, very briefly, just the elders, and then he goes back to Jerusalem, and you'll recall that's where he's arrested, and then finally he makes his way back to Rome and is in prison where he writes this letter. He says that in 57 that he did not expect to see them again. And what he meant was, I believe, that he wouldn't meet them again on earth, but he would see them again in heaven. So, the letter that Paul is writing to the Ephesians, the one that we're in the process of studying, is the next contact that he has with these believers. First contact, second missionary journey. Second contact, that two and a half years that he stays and preaches them house to house, the full counsel of God. The third contact was as he's coming back to Rome, very brief time, and he'll, I mean, back to Jerusalem. The fourth contact, the final contact, as far as we know, is this particular letter that we read here. The point of, the point of me telling you all that, in addition to reminding you of what we studied in Acts, is to let you know that Paul knows these people very well. Unlike the Romans, he had never been to Rome when he writes that letter to the Romans, so he has to spend a lot of time introducing himself in that letter. Not here. He knows these people well. He's acquainted with their strengths, and he's acquainted with their weaknesses, and he loves them very much. In addition, we should remember that most of what they knew of God and they knew of God's purposes and plans came from Paul. Now, later on, they'll be blessed by the Apostle John being their primary Bible teacher, and then finally, they'll be blessed a little later on by Timothy being their Bible teacher. And I don't know, you have to wonder, how would you like to have been either John or Timothy following Paul in Ephesus? They say that it's difficult to follow someone who's been in the same pulpit for 20 years. 
But how'd you like to be John in a Bible study? And somebody said, well, that's not the way Paul taught it. You know? <laughs> and John would say, no, well, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> yes, it is the way. I'm, I'm fairly certain it's the way he taught it. Um, but it would have been um, a very interesting situation there. One more, one more little bit of information about Ephesus. It was a large city, about 250,000 people. That's a large city in the ancient world. Rome probably had about a million people at this time. But it's, Ephesus is also, at this time, probably the third most important city in the world, politically, socially, and economically, intellectually, behind Rome and Athens. So it went Rome, Athens, Ephesus. So this is a very important city in the ancient world. Now to remind you, the book of Ephesians is divided up into two parts. Theology, in the first part, chapters 1 through 3, are essentially theological or doctrinal in their outlook. In chapters 4 and 6, these are essentially applicational in nature, taking the theology of the first three chapters and expounding upon the ethical nature of Christian, the Christian responsibility and duty to follow what was taught in the first one. So it's a fairly simple structure, and I, wanna, I know that you've heard this before, but I want to burn it into your soul in as many different ways as I can. Paul establishes doctrinal principles first. And he does this in Colossians as well, but he, in Romans too. He establishes very serious doctrinal considerations first, and then after he teaches us the doctrine, then he exhorts us to apply that which we know. Now, today's, uh, many in today's church have gotten that backwards. In fact, in some places they'll tell you, don't even use the word doctrine in a church anymore. People don't want to hear about Bible doctrine or theology or systematic theology. I had someone tell me that the other day. I hate, I hate the idea of systematic theology. Well, my, my attitude toward that would be get over it then because that's an extremely important part of your life. Don't come to me and tell me you hate systematic theology. You may as well be saying you hate God. Now, you may say, you may say I hate the way certain people have put it together. But no, we love theology. Theology is the study of God. And systematic theology is the study of God in, in a variety of categories. But Paul gives us the teaching of the truth first, and then he call, calls upon us to apply that which we know. You can't apply something that you don't know. It's fairly logical. So he tells us, some, he tells us the theology first, and then how we can behave in light of that theology second. Then we study that believers should walk in, in the application section, believers should walk in unity, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Believers should walk in holiness. This is the section that we just finished, in chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. Believers have the responsibility, as a result of what was taught in the first three chapters, now that you know that, you have the responsibility to walk in love. That's the section we'll start tonight. That's chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Believers will have the responsibility to walk in light. That's chapter 5, verses 7 through 14. And then finally, believers have the responsibility to walk in wisdom. That's chapter 5, verse 15 through chapter 6, verse 9. There are some concluding issues about spiritual warfare and some concluding comments after this portion of the application section. Now for tonight, we begin the section that believers should walk in love. Read along with me. Therefore, be imitators of God. As beloved children, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But do not let immorality or impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. 
For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So you can probably see there's a, a bit of a positive and a negative here. This, these six verses can really be divided up one more way. The first two verses that we'll speak of tonight is the positive walk of the Christian in love or the positive lifestyle of love that should mark the Christian. And then the second section is the negative aspect where Paul will explain to us what love is not like. Now, tonight we're going to see a very powerful, an extremely powerful expression of love in verses 1 and 2. But in verses 3 through 6, we'll see what love doesn't look like. Paul doesn't define love. In fact, I'm not sure, it's arguable, but I'm not sure that the Bible ever defines love. It describes it. But it doesn't give it a specific definition. It's almost as if God burned that into our hardwiring at birth. And we should already, there should be a, some concept of what love is. And then the Bible describes how that looks. And we're going to see that love was best demonstrated, best described, best shown to us in the death that Christ died on the cross. But then we could turn around and say, well, okay, I see that that's what love is. What is love not? Well, what love is not is what we see in verses 3 through 6, but that'll be our subject for next time. Verse 1 begins with a conjunction, therefore. Now, there's an old joke in, in hermeneutics. Whenever you see the word therefore, you should, you should go back and see what it's there for. Well, that therefore brings us back to the, to the sentence that we had been studying for actually three or four weeks, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, or perhaps showing grace to one another, but forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you, therefore be imitators of God. You see what he's doing? He's drawing our attention back to the previous verse. And he knows, Paul knows, the Holy Spirit certainly knows, speaking through Paul, that this idea of forgiving one another is not an easy concept to apply. It's easy to teach. It's easy to listen to. It's hard to go out and do so Paul pulls out what I call the apostolic ace trump. And the apost you know what an ace trump is in bridge? It's the highest card in bridge. You can't lose. You cannot lose with an ace trump. Well, he pulls out the apostolic ace trump, and that ace trump is Christ has already done this. When, when we want to say we should love our enemies, well, Christ has already done that. He gave his life for us while we were still his enemies. We weren't his friends. We weren't neutral. We were his enemies. We're supposed to forgive one another. Well, guess what? We should imitate Christ because it's already been done. God has already done this. So he says it in verse 32, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And now he says, you be an imitator of God. Follow the pattern of God. So there is a connection here with this, therefore, not just to verse 32 in the previous section, but also if we're, if we're, Examining this carefully, and I know when we examine something over a longer period of time, sometimes we miss these things or we've forgotten them. But if you go back, you see in, in chapter 4, verse 1, this verse begins with the word, therefore. The section that began Paul's discussion on unity, how, how the Christian should walk in unity, began, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. In verse 17, the section that began the discussion on holiness, this I say, therefore. 
And then we'll also see it at 5.1, 5.7, and 5.15. This word, therefore, marks out the beginning of each new section in the application section. So here we have another application from the doctrinal section. The believer is to have a lifestyle that is characterized by love. Paul made this clear also in one of his letters to Timothy when he said the goal of our instruction is love. That's what we're shooting for. If, we t- if, if you sit in a church, and I've said this before, but I mean it with all my heart, if you sit in a church, including this one, for more than, say, a year or two or three, and you find yourself not loving God more as a result of the time that you've spent there, or and as a result of that, loving your fellow believer more, you're probably in the wrong place. Because something's not working. Either it's not being presented or it's not getting through, but something's not working if after a period of time of study of the Word that we don't love God more. Pastors shouldn't call upon people to appreciate that more. Pastors appreciate it when you do. But when the sermon is finished, what a, what a true shepherd would want, instead of, instead of just simply an accolade, that was just a wonderful sermon. And that's great. Keep doing it if you want to. But what we really want to hear is, isn't God great? Wasn't that wonderful? Don't we serve a wonderful God? That means the attention is being focused where it should be. So now we have been given the command to have a lifestyle that is characterized by love. Therefore, be, probably more accurately translated, become. He's not saying that they are this right now. There's two ways, to, to, there's two Greek verbs for to be. This one typically means to become something. Become imitators of God. Now, this word imitators is an interesting word, mimetes. Mimetes, you can almost see a, um, hear an English word there, can't you? Mimetes, mimic. You're to mimic God. You're to imitate or to copy God. In a negative sense, this word was sometimes used to counterfeit, but this is being used in a positive way here. It means to, to imitate a good role model. So it's used in a positive sense. We are to imitate God. What better role model is there out there? While this is, in a sense, a broad command, calling upon the believer to have Christ-like behavior in everything that we do and to live each moment of our lives in harmony with His holiness, in this particular context, a particular aspect of divine behavior is in view. We are to imitate or to mimic or to copy the graciousness of God, lovingly showing grace to one another as we've been shown grace. Or, if you want to put it another way, lovingly forgiving one another as we have been forgiven. What Paul's trying to do is take a little bit of the sting out of the command that was given at the end of chapter 32. Because Paul was a realist. He he dealt with people. He knew this is going to be tough. So he wants us to make sure that there is a role model that we can follow. Remember how Charles Barkley said one time, I'm not a role model? Thank the Lord. I mean, I, I mean, I love him as a basketball player, but outside of that, he's no, he is no role model. But I, I like the fact that he said it, not just because it presented an opportunity for controversy on ESPN every night for months, but it did open up the discussion on the idea of role models. And immediately people shot back and they said, athletes shouldn't be role models in the first place. 
Parents should be role models. Big brother or big sister ought to be a role model. Grandparents, oh, grandparents are incredible, have an incredible opportunity to be role models. And even great-grandparents sometimes have an opportunity to be a role model. There's, there's such a responsibility there. God is the ultimate role model. And he doesn't ever ask us to do anything in terms of behavior that he hasn't already demonstrated himself. Now, this says that we're to become imitators of God or to copy God or to mimic God, if you prefer, but to follow God as our role model. This doesn't say that we're to become God or God with a little g as in Mormonism. It doesn't mean that we're to assume the prerogatives of God as in Satan. It doesn't mean either one of those, but we're to imitate God. So without the chapter break, it would read something like this, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has also forgiven you, therefore become imitators of God. This verse has suffered sometimes from incredibly poor exegesis. Someone asked me one time, do I, asked me to turn to Ephesians 5.1 and, and have me read it. I said, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And then I was... I was told that I, I was asked, did I agree with that? And I said, of course I agree with it. And then I was told that I was satanic. And I would, I, why, why, why am I satanic? Well, because was, who else wanted to be an imitator of God? No, 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 no. You're going down the wrong road. That's the wrong road. That's terrible exegesis. Satan wanted to become the God. He wanted to assume the prerogatives of God. This verse tells us to copy God in this particular behavior. Barnabas Lindars, who's a New Testament scholar who has a bit of a decent reputation, although he's real liberal in his theology, wrote an article entitled The Imitation of God and the Imitation of Christ, speaking about this verse. And he said this. He said, the imitation of God is, now I quote, is neither biblical nor true to the ethical position of Jesus and the early church insofar as these things can be recovered from the New Testament. Now, this is a guy that writes commentary that said this. It would have helped him a bit to read the text before putting such an inaccurate statement into print. That's terribly inaccurate. And as Harold Honer, New Testament, late New Testament scholar Dallas Seminary, said this, it's, uh, obviously he had never read Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. We are to imitate God. But I want, you, I want to be very careful because Mormonism is big in the news nowadays. Real big in the news nowadays. It doesn't mean that we're to become gods, with the little g. It doesn't mean we're to assume the prerogatives of God as per Satan. No, we're to imitate God. It's a big difference. And I hope that you see that difference. It should be pretty transparent. Now, how are we to do that? We're to do it as beloved children. Now, what, this language is beautiful. It's almost poetic language. This is narrative, but it's almost poetic in its nature, and it pictures a child that is so loved by his father that he just deeply desires to be like his father. Now, I didn't say that the child so loves his father that he wants to be like him. That's true, too. But this, this pic is a picture of a child that is so loved of a father, by a father that that child grows up with such comfort, such encouragement, that as they grow up, they say, I want to be like him. 
Now, it doesn't mean they want to be whatever he is professionally or that they want to live in the same place or be in the same degree of health. Not that at all. It's talking about character, the character traits that the father possesses. It could also be said of the mother, too, and hopefully is said of the mother. Here's a picture of a father. But this, this, is, someone, this is a child that is so loved by his father that that child can't help but want to be like that father. Now, is it so hard to make that transition from the, the teaching metaphor, as beloved children, or simile, as beloved children, into our lives today? We are so loved of the Father that it should be the natural result to love him back. We love him because he first loved us. We don't initiate it. He initiates it. But we, he loves us so much. It is so attractive. How could it not be? that the normal reasonable human being, normal reasonable believer, will want so much to love him back. And as we love him back, we want to copy, imitate, mimic that which he does. He forgives, we should forgive. That's how this all ties into this particular text. And it's an act of love to do it. Remember back when Paul writes 1 Corinthians 13? Recall a minute ago I said there's no definition for love that I know of a specific definition of love in the Bible, but there are descriptions. 1 Corinthians 13 is a description of what love is like. Do you remember that? And remember, right in the middle of that, there's one that I, I make sure that I always say this in weddings because it's so important in a marriage relationship. Love does not keep accounts of a wrong suffered. Remember that? That's love. And if you're going to make it in marriage... If you're going to make it through this life having any friends at all, it, but especially if you're going to make it in a marriage relationship, you better not keep accounts of wrongs suffered because your marriage is doomed as soon as you start doing that. And you see what Paul's doing here in another place is after he's written 1 Corinthians 13, he's drawing that idea of love back into this whole forgiveness motif. This is the ultimate motivation. God did it. He loves us. We need to uh, mi mimic or imitate him. The term agape, which is one of the two primary terms in the New Testament that's used to uh, translated love, this refers to love that is given irrespective of merit. It means even if the person doesn't deserve it. And it seeks the highest good of the one that is loved. That's really important, so I want to say it again. This, this word agape refers to love given irrespective of merit. And it seeks the highest good in the one that is being loved. And the highest good that we can hope for in this life, in terms of another person or ourselves, but this is talking about another person, the highest good that I can hope for in another person is that the will of God be accomplished in their life. That may not have been what was first on your mind. We think of health and wealth and prosperity and all these things. The highest good that I can will for another person is that the will of God is accomplished in their life, first in their salvation, and then in their spiritual growth, their growth to maturity. That's the highest good that I can pray for them, that I can hope for them. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. This is, again, this is a perpetual lifestyle that is characterized by love. Just as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant aroma 
and a sacrifice to God. Now, I've got to tell you, for me, this really ends all discussion on the validity of Christians forgiving one another. Right then. That's, he just pulled out the ace trump, boom, he took the trick. There's nothing that can beat that. We do it because it's already been done for us. Do you remember the parable of the unforgiving servant? The one who was forgiven much, but then turned around and refused to give someone else, forgive someone else a little? That's how God looks at it. He looks at it like we have been forgiven so much, and when he asks us to forgive one another, it's actually very little compared to what he's already done. Just as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant aroma and a sacrifice to God. The idea of Christian love has always been a difficult one for us to put our minds around. Many times, I, it's been my experience anyway, I, many things that I have read, written by Christians on Christian love, have been very influenced by their own psychological perspective, and what can what comes out in writing can sometimes actually often be tainted by some negative experience in the life of the writer. So you have to be very careful when people write on love. In my view, C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves is a great text on love. I think he does a real good job in there. By the way, there there is a copy. I've got one. There's, there's an audio copy of him reading his own books, one of, the only, one of the only extent copies of him speaking that we have. If you ever want to listen to it, I'll bring it up sometime, just, just for a few minutes. It's really good. But, but Lewis, I think, understood love. But some people have written on love that really don't understand it. This kind of love that we speak about tonight, this agape love, this love that wills the highest for someone else, the highest good for someone else, this kind of love will not be emotion-free. It will not be emotion-free. Love, by its very definition, will always contain some degree of emotion, a greater or lesser degree, to be sure, depending on the circumstances or the person that's involved, but some degree of emotion will always be present in love or it would be called something else. It doesn't matter what language you're speaking. So there, be a, there, there will be a greater or lesser degree of love depending on how well I know an individual or what the particular circumstance is. But for it to be called love, it has to at least have some degree of emotion. The model is Christ's love for us. And the action taken as a result of that love. Now, here's why I say it's always going to contain some degree of, of emotion. Jesus loved us and he gave himself for us. That's love in five words, isn't it? He gave himself for us. That's love. Now, here's Jesus was not forced by either his intellect or logic to lay down his life for the sheep. Because intellectually, the answer would have been no. Intellectually, they, they were, we were his enemies. Intellectually, you don't die for your enemies. That's something that comes from the heart. Now, I'm not talking about modeling emotion. I'm talking about the highest form of emotion there is. That's divine emotion. God's emotion. It's something greater than just logic. 
something greater than just the intellect. It was an emotion that we may never fully understand or appreciate. Although I suspect that a deepening appreciation of the love of Christ and his voluntary sacrifice on our behalf is, the, is one of the marks of a maturing Christian. As we mature in the faith, I think we're going to appreciate that love more. And we may just get a, almost a shadow glimpse of it. I've wondered sometimes why he did it. We were his enemies. We were rebellious creatures. But you realize before he ever created us, if we're to take the Bible seriously, before he ever created us, he knew full well what we would do and what the ramifications of Adam's decision were going to be for everybody else. And the major ramification is going to be that his son's going to have to come die for us. Now, intellectually, if it's just pure intellect, pure intellect says, no, I don't think so. I'm not going to create at all. But there was something in him that the Bible describes as love that should never be boiled down to something that is emotionless. There's something in him that caused him to do that. Someday, if it's appropriate, I hope to approach my Savior. Of course, we'll be in heaven when that happens. And I'd love to ask him about that divine conference that took place. Of course, that's just our own language of accommodation. And, and what happened there? Why did, you de- why did you decree to create even though you knew what it was going to cost you? And you know what I suspect he's going to tell me? Yes, he's going to say, well, I already wrote it down, or I had it written down for you that I loved you. But I'm going to say, I know, but I still, I still don't get it. I don't get the depth of that kind of love. And, he's, and he, I'm, I'm sure he's going to look at me and say, I know you don't. I know you don't. Maybe in heaven we continue to grow, and someday we'll really come to grips with the love that has been shown to us. We can have, we can have some semblance of that now. We better have some semblance of that now, or we'll never mature in our Christian lives. But to really fully appreciate what was done for us. Maybe we need to be in resurrection bodies before we're going to fully appreciate that. I'm talking about fully appreciate it. But once we do, well, we'll never be the same. He gave himself for us. Now that's as high a sacrifice that you could make. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. He loved you, Paul says, and gave himself up for us. Well, that's the standard. When we talk about loving one another, when we talk about walking in love, that's the standard. That's a pretty high bar. But that's where it is. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, a demonstration, and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God, a fragrant aroma. Heavenly Father, we look at a passage like this and we are awestruck with the standard that you're calling us to. We thank you so much for 
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of our Lord Jesus Christ, that even though he didn't have to, he came and died for us. We may never understand that fully this side of heaven, but help us through your Holy Spirit to have an adequate understanding of that so that we might be changed by our understanding, so that we might love you more each day that we walk on this planet, looking forward to that day when we see you face to face. Father, help us to live consistently with who we are in Christ, loving one another, and showing grace or forgiveness to one another just as you have in Christ also forgiven us. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name.